This is Spine, how books are put together. I'm your host, Holly Dunn, and in today's interview, we're talking with Amanda Weiss, who is a freelance book cover designer who works primarily with university presses. And in this interview, we cover lots of things, including typography, photography, and her use of colour. So without further ado, here's Amanda. Uh, Well, I went to a community college in North Carolina, and then I went to Savannah College of Art and Design in Savannah, Georgia, where I got my degree in uh, graphic design. And one of my first job outside of school was at Princeton University Press. And I've always really loved books. I didn't even know, you know, a book designer <laughs> was a job. Uh, I got into graphic design when I was in high school, and I knew I wanted to be a graphic designer. But when I was a kid, I was always fascinated by libraries and books and I loved it and I thought it was just because I loved to read but in reality I think it was that I I loved how the books looked and uh, so I didn't really understand that a book designer was a profession until I got into college and a lot of my portfolio was uh, veering towards a lot of print and book design projects. It just felt something that that came naturally. I became a book designer in-house at Princeton University Press for about three and a half years. And then in 2017, I started freelancing full time as a book designer. So that's where we are now. Fantastic. So your your work at Princeton University Press, what what did that look like? Were you sort of doing a bit of all sorts? Or did you specialize in something to begin with? Oh, it was it was a lot of different things. Mainly, it was the covers and the jackets, obviously, but we also did a lot of the interior work. We also did art preparation for the interiors, a lot of typesetting. We didn't do compositing. We sent that out, fortunately. So it was a little, it was a little bit of everything. Now uh, I do mainly jacket and cover designs, but I'll occasionally do an interior. So, so it was a good start to to your career in terms of getting a, a oh, broad overview. Yes, without a doubt. I mean, I learned an incredible amount. At Princeton, especially about type and how it looks on the page and how you really need to print everything out and see how it's going to look to get a better understanding of it. And it it just it taught me so much. It's invaluable. So, yeah. And how big is Princeton University Press? We are. See, I I still say we. (laughs) (laughs) I'm never going to get used to it. But uh, Princeton University Press is one of the larger university presses, so they have about 100 employees total. I'd say at least 10 different editors. We have a UK office. uh, So, yeah, one of the bigger university presses. So you were working in quite a big team of designers then? Yes, yeah. uh, We also have one of the bigger design departments, and we would figure that out when we went to the the Association of uh, University Presses uh, annual uh, meeting, we realized that we had quite a large design department compared to other university presses, about, I say, nine, 10 designers in-house. So wow. uh, not, yeah, not counting our art director. So but we also had about 200 books per year. So it was, uh, it was, we were always, we were always busy. So yeah. Wow. So what did that process look like when you're working through a book at Princeton University Press in particular? So at Princeton, it normally, if we were doing the interior, 
we'd normally ha- uh, have a meeting where we would get the manuscript and we usually work about a year out from the book by the time the manuscripts submitted we we would uh begin talking about how we wanted the interior to look like and it would land in my lap once it was copy edited usually and then i would begin the interior design sample pages we'd send it to the editor and the author we'd get the okay and then we would send it off to the compositor um, sometimes for our catalog books we would be working on the cover before the interior um, especially if it needed to be in the catalog in time so that was normally we'd have the jacket meeting where we'd sit down with the editor and the art director and we'd discuss what they were thinking for the book and get a sense of what it was about and then we'd have a few weeks to work on it and we'd get back to them and we'd uh, we'd discuss our, our options get it approved as soon as we can but of course, you know, it's not always that simple. So, but that was the gist of it. So quite a, sh- a short turnaround then. <laughs> it, it definitely felt like it. <laughs> um, yeah, it was uh, quite quick. And because uh, we'd only have about two or three proofs from the interior. So we'd get the cover done within, for the trade books, at least, we'd normally get the covers done within a month or two. Um, and then... For, for the entire catalog, we would usually get the covers done in about three more three months. And uh, the interiors would take a few months, but it would take under a year and it went quite fast. So, yeah. And how does that compare to how you're working now as a freelancer? Are you working actually, to a, a faster deadline? Yes. Uh, at least that's what it feels like right now. <laughs> I just... Uh, <laughs> I just finished one of my busier seasons as we're preparing for the fall. And uh, I'd say that normally I would get all the materials I need, like the final information, the manuscript, you know, design forms. And then I'd have about three weeks to get a uh, first round of cover comps. And so normally that would take, if there's revisions, maybe a week or two. But it, it was it was quite tight. Yeah, it was a uh, quite fast. Fortunately, I don't have as many interiors as I did or backlist books as I did in uh, in-house at the press. So now I have more control over which books and what type of projects I want to take on. So. And you mentioned seasons and how you know, you've got a certain batch of deadlines at a certain time. Is that different for university presses than it is for traditional publishers or you know, uh, trade publishers? That's a great question. No, that's a great question. Um, unfortunately, I feel like I'm a lot stronger or my knowledge is a lot better with the university press world, but I have uh, done some work for some trade publishers and they seem to be even faster, if not like more in advanced than university presses. Mm. Um, like maybe a year and a half before the book is published, they're already asking for a cover design. So I would say there's a little more pressure there. Yeah, unfortunately, I'm a little more used to the uh, the university press, like strict spring and fall seasons and preparing everything about, you know, six months to a year before that season. So, I mean, you must have some, some of your audience or readers must be more like the trade readers anyway, but I suppose yes. a lot of it is, is more specialized. Would I be right in thinking that? Yes, no, um, it's, it, it can be a lot more uh, specific, especially with the, the genres. And we publish a, at Princeton, and I work out a lot of nonfiction. When I did some work for 
yeah, for HarperCollins, it was a, a fiction book. So the process felt a little different. What was the fiction book? Um, well, the cover got killed. Um, oh, it was, okay. Yeah, sorry about that. Darn. Um, the, no, I know. No, the majority of the work that I've done for uh, trade publishers end up don't making the cut. So um, it's it's interesting, though, because I, I do a lot more. I did a lot more revisions with larger, more like traditional publishers. And I feel like while I love the ability to do so many different things and I feel like I have more creative freedom with uh, traditional trade publishers, it's a lot harder and you're working with a lot more people and a lot more opinions than say the uh, in the university press world. I feel like you have an opportunity to be a little more literal. I, I know what will work and what won't work better. So that's that's definitely something I found and also having heard from other book designers that that does seem to be the case with, with larger publishers. You know, it's it's a large design team. They've got to go through marketing and you know, yes. editors and and everybody else and it's it really is a, a huge team. Yeah. yeah, and and the author as well sometimes. And their agent sometimes, so yeah. you you never know. <laughs> and, and then I mean if it's in the UK, Waterstones have a say and if they don't like the cover, you have to go back to the drawing board and I think it's the same with Barnes and Noble in the US. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. Yeah, we uh, even at university presses, we will get input from Barnes and Noble yeah. and they can easily kill a cover. <laughs> that must uh, be quite daunting. <laughs> yeah, it can be. Um, fortunately, from working at Princeton, I was able to gain a lot of experience in understanding what is expected and how I can kind of push the genre, but not push it to the point where it looks out of place. So I feel like more often than not, something can get approved. So mm. do, you, do you have any specific examples of that where your books that you've maybe changed because of something Barnes & Noble had had said or a way that you a different way that you think about the way you're designing? Uh, well, I know that I can't think of any specific books, but I will keep in mind um, color palettes and the size of typography because I know that marketing, advertising, publicity, we they tend to be more attracted to books that'll look better at thumbnail size and be quite large. So I keep that in mind when I'm designing. I always have at least one concept that is one of the big trade looks just to be safe. Normally, I'd say not so much Barnes & Noble, but it's usually the the authors that obviously have the, the strongest decision-making power there. And I, I completely understand because it's their book. And if you didn't make something appropriate, then that's not going to work for the book. So yeah, I'm sorry. I can't think of any specific books that happened recently, unfortunately. I'm but sorry. More of a more of a general idea. That's really helpful, actually. And, and you mentioned color palettes. So are you thinking sort of bright colors that will stand out? Yes, like uh, everyone loves or tends to really enjoy bright colors, but I think they they like those color palettes that work really well, like red and blue mm. and you know, yellow and blue or red, black and white will always work. And um, I think it can get a little scary when you take riskier color palettes like green and pink or <laughs> orange and blue and people get a little scared with those. So I, you know, and that's just from learning over time what editors, what marketing, what people respond well to and so I try to push it but I don't push it 
too much to the point where I know it's going to get rejected. So yeah. And has that changed over time? The the color palette sort of trends? Have you noticed that at all? I'd say in the past few years, um, I'd say a lot more black, red and white covers have been getting approved. But I've also been trying to push myself further and try different covers and, and try to present different cover options, even though they may not make it, because you never know. And so I always like to have one or two safer covers that I know will will be approved, but are they, at, are they the best for the book? Could it be stronger? Could we push this in a different direction? Maybe, you know, nobody was thinking it could go in this direction and then they love it. You know, you surprise them. So I'd say color palettes have remained pretty usually a black, white, and two nice pair, pairing colors usually uh, get the uh, get the approval. <laughs> yeah. Oh, how interesting. And you mentioned green covers. And this seems to be a thing that I, I've I seen. I try so hard. I just... try so hard to get green covers through and I just can't do what it. What is it with green covers? I, I still don't quite understand. I don't understand it. I mean, green is a lovely color, but I think people freak out because they're like, is it chartreuse? And you're like, no, it's just green. And it's great because nothing else is green. But I don't know. Everyone, it's, but it's all about playing it a little safe because taking risks can be scary, you know, especially with the the cover. It's the first mm. thing people see. So of course, if they're able to, they're gonna, they're gonna make the safer decision. And I completely understand that. But I'm also like, oh, let me try a different color palette for once. Yeah, I wonder if there are any actual statistics on this because I, I just, I'd be so interested to know if, if green books just <laughs> don't so... sell or. Yeah. And I, I think mean, that was yeah. like, like Princeton was avoiding yellow covers for quite some time. And I think that it was just depending on which editor you got, because sometimes when you, you know an editor, you know what colors they're going to enjoy the most. Sometimes they gravitate towards warm colors over cool colors. And, uh, but you don't know that unless you work with them. And now in the past year and a half, I've seen this like, explosion of that beautiful, like golden yellow color on all books like for example the Beyonce book I did for Texas mm, I'm just uh, looking at I, that yeah that yellow color it's just it's so I love it it's so powerful it's loud it's just a warm color that I want to use on everything now so yeah, yeah and um, there are lots of yellow covers on on your site I'm just looking at betraying yeah. <laughs> big brother um woke gaming under the cover yep I, yeah, I've just been, I just want a yellow cover too. But now that I know that it's very popular and now I'm actively trying to pick different color schemes to try, Mm -hmm. like now I'm trying to push more purple covers because I feel like I'm not using that color enough. And I, I think people associate it with a few things off the bat and I'm, I just want to change that. So yeah, so are you going into bookshops a lot and sort of looking at what's popular and and what's what's changing? Yeah. I try my best. Um, <laughs> I used to have this fantastic bookstore in Princeton called Labyrinth Books, and they would have all their books, you know, in the front facing out, and you'd be able to see trends immediately just pop mm. out, and I could spend hours there, but. Um, Right now, I'm surrounded by a lot of Barnes and Nobles, so I'm going to try to use those. Um, but I do try to get out 
as much as I can and look at books in person just because then I can pick them up and see what type of stock they're on. I can see what colors they used and then I can also see who designed it, which is great because then I can just add it to my endless bookmark bar yeah. of designers. So yeah. and you can look at their work and inspiration. So yeah, I'm definitely trying to get out into the store. Um, but more often than not, uh, because of being so busy, I've had to rely uh, a lot on Amazon and other other sites like Barnes and Noble and Amazon to see like their similar books and and Instagram as well just to see what's what's popular right now. So mm. yeah, I don't know if you find this, but when I go into a bookshop and I look at the the new releases, I'll kind of go, "This is hasn't this one been out for ages?" Because I've, I follow <laughs> so many cover designers that I'm seeing the covers being you know, yes. revealed so much earlier and you know, by the time they hit the shelves I think it's a it's a backlist title yes yeah, yeah. um I I I know I share my work usually much earlier than it should be published so it's never a surprise but um it's great for marketing for the press because mm. then they can use it but um yeah it does feel a little like deja vu like wait this is finally coming out yeah <laughs> so yeah um so it's always a, a fun surprise when you see something that was just released and it's by a designer you know and you're like hey I haven't seen this yet so it's it's exciting that's true uh, all right um so just going back to we've sort of gone a little bit off off track okay. but it's been wonderful <laughs> um <laughs> okay. so we've covered sort of talking about how university presses are different from trade publishers so obviously you you started off in the the university press world but did you actively when you went freelance did you actively try to stay within the the university press world or were you wanting to branch out a bit more uh yes I I yes and no I I knew that while I was at Princeton I was able to freelance on the side and um I slowly started working for a handful of other university presses and that kind of helped me start my client list so that I had clients once I once I started freelancing but um I did reach out to trade publishers as well as I have a strong interest in trying to do more trade books and push myself by working uh with fiction which I don't do very often but I'm very interested in and uh yeah but right now majority of my my clients are are university presses but I'm open to both uh but that just seems to be the clients I'm getting, which is not a problem because I, I enjoy working with university presses a lot. So those those people you were working with in the early days when you were still working at, at Princeton, mm-hmm. were they people you had met through the sort of book book design community, or had you reached out to them yourself? No, they were actually people that I, I met through the book design community. Um, I would attend the the annual uh, American University Press meeting in different locations, and sometimes I was able to meet different different art directors or different designers. And then over time, I would reach out to them, or they would reach out to me, and uh, I was able to build up that client base. So was that a, a sort of business card thing? Way, you know, <laughs> uh, more like here's the link hey, to my portfolio. <laughs> you're so-and-so, oh my gosh, I love your work. And then yeah. you talk books about books for like two hours. So yeah, yeah that's usually how it went. <laughs> uh, 
yeah, so I was extremely fortunate to be able to go to those meetings and meet designers that I admired in person. So, mm. yeah, yeah, that, that's. But there's there's definitely a lot of cold emailing. <laughs> yeah, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say that there isn't. So, so for people who don't have those kinds of connections, do you think cold emailing is is the best approach, or is it kind of online huh? networking? I don't know, using so, Instagram. That's a great question. Um. I think that social media has really opened some doors that I didn't expect. Um, for example, when fonts.com has their annual fontacular event where they have a week of discounted fonts and font packages, um, you can enter to win prizes. And through that, uh, one of the designers reached out to me and asked if I was interested in working with them on one of their hero images for their website. So you never really know where it's going to come from. So I'd say definitely try to follow people on Instagram and Twitter because I think that it can surprise you. And you can also just start that conversation with people without it feeling really like, I don't want to say forced, but an email is a lot, uh, a lot more formal. So I feel like it takes away some of that, that pressure. But I, I did send out a self-promotion uh, when I started out and it got some good feedback. Yeah. Was that a postcard I, or did you do something fancier? Yeah, I ended up doing like a, it was just like a fourfold type of, you know, it was a square and it folded out and folded out again. And it just showed some of the example of my graphic design work that I've done and the awards and contact information. And I just ended up sending that out to a bunch of art directors, at various publishers. So mm. I think I heard back from three so you never know but I'd say that having a presence on Instagram and Twitter and cold emailing is definitely more successful I mean I think that self-promotions are nice but maybe it's just the day and age but um, I think that the social media is definitely one-upping the self-promo right now so it, it's certainly a lot cheaper to do because doing a, a- you know, if you're that's sending true. something out yeah. to 100 art directors, that's with postage as well. It's a lot of postage. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, a lot of postage yeah. and the things, get, you know, if you're doing something nice, getting them printed and all of yeah. that. Exactly. And then taking the time to cut them out and fold them. And then at the yeah. end of the day, you may not even be sure if they got it. Mm. So, you know, because you're doing your own research. And uh, so that's why I would definitely recommend emailing just starting conversation or at least following people you admire on Instagram or Twitter. Yeah, I've definitely found that Instagram has been an amazing way to to get work and not not in the ways I would expect really. Mm-hmm. It, it hasn't necessarily been for publishers, but I've had independent authors get yes. in touch with me and some of those have been fantastic jobs. That's awesome. And yeah, it it seems to be the place I to be people- at the moment. Yeah, people just, I feel like you have an easier time talking to people on social media. Maybe it's yeah. because it takes down some of that formality that an email would, would have. But uh, And also, if you're checking your emails, it kind of feels like, it feels like work. It feels like, yeah. oh, this is my enormous to-do list. Whereas mm-hmm. if you're on Instagram and checking your DMs, it, it doesn't feel, it doesn't feel so much like a business inquiry. Mm-hmm. It, yeah, it gets rid of that that kind of work barrier, I think. Yes. Yeah, I agree. 
it could start off as just having a conversation about how much you enjoy their cover design or asking questions about what paper they used or whatever. So, yeah. And the algorithm loves it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um, so I was going to ask about your your style. And I mean, we've covered this a little bit, but why it is that the publishers come to you over a, another book designer, what it is that makes an Amanda cover? <laughs> that is a great question. And I'd love to know. So if somebody could tell me, that'd be great. <laughs> but um, I know it's so hard. <laughs> no, it's like, oh, well, um, my name begins with an A. It's at the top of the list. I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, I think, honestly, after thinking about it for a little bit, I think it's because I try to produce like a lot of different looking work. I try not to have a distinct style, which can be extremely difficult because we all have those like design uh, crutches that we use when we're designing. And, and I just try to kind of push myself to make everything look different. And I'm hoping that it's because clients can see that I can work on a variety of genres and a variety of subjects and still make everything look unique. So that's what I would say. Mm. But I'm a little biased, so. Well, it, I find this so interesting because some book designers really fall into that, you know, this is my style, this is how I work yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, and that's totally and, okay, yeah. I mean, and, if that's what some, you want to do. Yeah, and, and some are more to do with the types of work that they, that the subject matter that they work on or the the kinds of presses they work with, that kind of thing. And I just yes. find it really interesting you know, why people choose these particular niches and, and how, mm -hmm. how they fall into them. Yes. I mean, mm -hmm. I think that there's also been instances where people have reached out to me for a specific book because they like that I try to do lettering or, or something like that. And they know that that's what they want for this book. But that doesn't happen as often as I think so. So do people come to you and say, I love this piece in your portfolio. I'd like something that is similar or along these lines not normally uh normally it's just we have this book we think you'd be a good fit they may say i really enjoyed this cover for so and so that you did but i i i don't find that happening as often so i think that being able to work on so many different topics um especially like with princeton it's a lot of science books with texas there's uh i'm working on a lot of music books I love the variety that I get with university presses. So so when I look at your portfolio, I sort of think the the bright colors are definitely a big part of it. And, and that lettering, yeah. that sort of handwritten lettering style that you've got. Well, thanks. Yeah, I, I would say that that's the closest thing I would have to the to a style. And I notice myself doing that when I when I'm working, I will be like wow I'd love if there was a bright color oh I should do a hand done component and then suddenly it's like wait does that look too much like this other cover I did so you know just realizing it's it's um just to not, not to fall into that trap for me is important but I would I would have no problem being known as the person who does really bright colors with some handwritten stuff so yeah obviously you've you've gone freelance now and that can be quite a, a difficult transition to make yes because you've you've got to be quite disciplined and sort of set up a routine for yourself so what what does your routine look like I imagine it's quite 
vary depending on if you've got a podcast interview that day. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, and I'm still trying to figure it out. And I'm sure it's going to take me many years to figure out a solid routine. Right now, I'd say one of the things I try not to do is I try not to look at my email when I first wake up. Uh, within like the first 45 minutes of waking up, I'm like, no, I'm not looking at Instagram. I'm not looking at Twitter and I'm not looking at my email. I'm just going to get ready. And I feel like it's a good way to not get overwhelmed or immediately start thinking about work as soon as you get up, because that can be extremely stressful and nobody wants to start out the day like that. After that, you know, once I decide to get started, I get my coffee and I kick my cats out and I I sit down and I, I look at all my email. (laughs) That's, that's honestly what I tackle first, uh, during, during the beginning of the day, just to get it out of the way with. And then, um, like these past, uh, few weeks, uh, have been incredibly busy. And so what I did was I backtracked a lot of, uh, my due dates and then I wrote down what I wanted to work on each day to try to accomplish that. And, um, so then I had something set to work on each day because project management is definitely not my strength, but I remember interning at this, uh, at this, uh, branding studio in, in the Philadelphia area and they had a project manager and it blew my mind. And I was like, wow, I I would love one of those. And so (laughs) now it's more, uh, me being, trying to learn to become more disciplined with my schedule and stay on top of things. And, you know, I answer emails as I go on throughout the day, but I usually try to get them done in the morning. And then, uh, yeah, I'd say I'd love to try to get out to the bookstore as part of my routine. But unfortunately, I, I, I don't get out as much as I want to. So um, do you always work from home? That's a great question. Uh, currently, yes, my office is uh, in my home. And it's a separate room. And so it it keeps it separated from my home life. And that was really important to me. But sometimes if it gets to be a little bit too much, you know, if the cats meow like way too much, I have to go out and go to a coffee shop or get a just a change of space is is important, too. Um, So, yeah, sometimes I'll go. I got about five different coffee shops that I kind of cycle through. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah. But normally I'm working from home. So. Um, what does your home studio setup look like? Do you work on a, a Wacom tablet or you have funny you ask. particular things? Because I recently just got a monitor and it's a lifesaver. I used to work on a laptop for the good year and a half. And I realized that I could not keep doing that. And I would kind of do it at my kitchen table and I would do it in this other part of the house that was cold six months out of the year so I couldn't work there and it just became to be like frustrating so we ended up setting aside an office space for myself and I have an iMac which does wonders with interiors (laughs) that are like eight and a half by 11 so I'm extremely grateful for that and uh, I do have a Wacom Intuos Pro 4 from many years ago but I love it and it's extremely reliable and uh yeah I love working with it I have an iPad Pro but the but the Wacom is like my favorite so Mm. yeah how do you find the the iPad Pro compared to the Wacom it's very nice to be able to draw directly onto what you are drawing um if that makes sense like when you draw on the screen with the iPad Pro but I do find sometimes that 
it might lag or skip sometimes. And that that concerns me because sometimes I want to be extra precise. Um, So I usually I'll use the iPad Pro for sketching out ideas that I want to refine because I'm able to easily erase things. And for I usually use the uh, the Intuos uh, for uh, working on cutting shapes out in Photoshop. I find that that works really, really well, even though it's not directly on the screen. It uh, it works really nicely. So, and are you using something like AstroPad, or do you work in Procreate? Yes, I was thinking about getting AstroPad, but I ended up just using Procreate. I think it's a great option. They finally let you change the canvas size. Oh, I know. Oh man, when that <laughs> came out, I was like, it is about time. Like, Absolutely. I, oh man, that was an incredible feature. I'm really glad they did that. Yeah, rather um, than having to set up a new canvas and copy and paste everything okay. over. And then the video, if you wanted to do a video, it would cut at that point and yeah. just like, it was, oof. Yeah, so when they when they said that they were going to do that, I was like, oh my goodness. So, yeah. Um, so. Yeah, and I think Procreate is only going to get better from here. Yes. Without a doubt. And maybe, you know, maybe the Apple Pencil, maybe I'll figure out how to use it correctly but for right now especially for detailed work I enjoy using the the Intuos with the uh the iMac I think it works really well so Mm. until my pen gives out on me which I'm sure will happen soon so and do you ever do sort of pen and paper sketches or is it all digital oh man I I really try to sketch for every project because I feel like you can find out how strong your ideas are if you force yourself to sketch them out so I do a lot of pencil on paper uh, sketches before going onto the computer. And I love trying to do stuff by hand and scanning them in. And I might do, you know, 10 or 20 different sheets of hand-drawn items and then never use any of them. So, but it's all about trying to figure out what works. And I think that that can help you or help your work feel much more unique too. And you can yes, get through a lot them of- a lot more quickly as well, just sort of getting those ideas out of your head and onto some paper. Yes, and that's a great point because uh, it reminded me about my process and sketching was really important to me because I'll read the manuscript or the synopsis and while I'm doing that, I'm writing down you know, keywords or key sentences or key thoughts and then sometimes I'll also be sketching out an idea I quickly think of and my uh, graphic design professor in community college gave me a really good tip that sometimes um, the thing that you often draw first or design first or the first thing that pops into your head uh, may like subconsciously be something you've already seen and you don't even know it. And so that forces me to, especially because I see book covers every day all the time, I try to push through that and knock out as many sketches and ideas, even if they're not good and I know they're not good, I'm going to try to sketch it out. So that's out of my brain, (laughs) you know, and you know, you can keep pushing yourself towards that better idea. So. And then when you've got those sketches finished and you sort of take a step back and, and look at them, how do you evaluate them and decide which ones to then turn into comps? That's a great question. Uh, Normally, I'll try to narrow it down to three or four of what I think are the strongest ideas. And more often than not, I'll jump on the computer and start trying one of them out and realize it's terrible. And so, uh, you know, I I might think they're strong. But then once I start putting it on the computer and looking at it, 
it, it you don't have any room to hide. So you you it uh it can determine whether or not it works pretty quickly. But um yeah, so and sometimes as you go an idea will morph into a different idea and that you didn't even sketch out. And that's also a very nice part of the process. So yeah, yeah, definitely. And I find that often if I've done a set of sketches, I can almost put them into little batches and go, okay, so these three are really similar, which is the best out of these and yes, work like that. Or this is a similar idea. You know, is this really just the same concept, but done two different ways, which is the stronger one of the two maybe I need to go on the computer to figure that out. So, you know. Yeah. And if you're using, say, photographs, I'm looking at the uh, Betraying Big Brother one at the moment. Yes. Where, where, where did those pictures come from? And at what point in the process did the pictures come into it? Uh, so that's a great question. Um, so for that one specifically, I ended up doing some research online of the Bloody Brides protest because it was featured in the book. And so the art director mentioned, I think either he mentioned it or I saw it in the synopsis. And I was like, okay, well, this might be something I want to look up. And then I looked it up and was like, oh, this would be a really cool idea for this. So, But sometimes they'll have specific imagery um, that you want to use. But like, for example, uh, Living on Paper, the Iris Murdoch letters, I love that image. But it was from Getty. So it was kind of expensive. I didn't sketch it out. I just I saw the image and was like, I know exactly where I want to place the type in this. And so I saw the photograph, did some pen and ink uh, lettering, and then I scanned it in. And that's how that process went. So sometimes it depends on the source of inspiration, too. Talking of inspiration, when when you uh, when you've read a, a manuscript, are you then mm-hmm looking at different images that inspire you from that or are you looking at other books that are say in a similar genre what sort of research do you do before you put pen to paper yeah so normally what I'll ask for is a copy of the manuscript unfortunately sometimes a manuscript isn't always submitted in time so I just have to work off of you know a three paragraph synopsis and uh, maybe I'll get the introduction or the first chapter, especially with university press books, I rarely read more than one chapter, um, just because they can be really dense and specific. Um, But also because of the timeline, I I just wouldn't have time to be able to read um, almost all of it. And so I'll get a synopsis. I really love launch forms, which describe maybe selling points or the audience that they're looking for. That really helps me out. And then uh, what I do from there is, like I said earlier, sometimes when I'm reading the uh, the manuscript or the synopsis, I'll be sketching out ideas or I'll be writing down points and that I want to keep in mind. And then I will start a folder just for inspiration before I even started sketching, just of books that are both in the genre and then books that I think are aesthetically pleasing that I feel like would fit for this book. And then sometimes I'll collect them all together and put them in a mood board. So that way I have something to reference if I ever get stuck during the process or I need to remind myself of a color palette I really liked. And, uh, and then I start picking out imagery that I think would be best for the book, which, you know, is a process. I mean, I mean, I get some images that I think will work well off the bat, but I know that I will be constantly saving images throughout the process because 
um, you know, as your as your designs reveal themselves, you'll get more and more images. So that's kind of what I do before I, I start sketching. And do the art directors provide some imagery to begin with or similar covers? Um, yes. So it varies from publisher to publisher. Uh, like I just had a publisher send me this amazing PDF of books that were within the genre and then books that they liked the look of and then books that would be great for the the design direction itself. And I was like, wow, I wish that every publisher sent me this. <laughs> but um, yeah, usually, usually they'll send about two or three uh, the art director will send maybe two or three uh, suggestions on what they would like it to look like or look similar to. But it's usually, um, I feel like, up to me to try to confirm with them what kind of look they're going for. So, um, But sometimes they'll give me a very specific image, like the author loves this image, we need to work with this image, but also try other things. Like with the Beyonce book, it was very, like we wanted to focus on her hat but we were open to a lot of other imagery. So that one was a little more free reign. So, And do you find it, it's kind of high pressure if an author particularly likes one image and you know that they might be leaning towards that more than other ideas? Yes. I mean, it can. And you try really hard to make it work. But then it's also how good of a relationship you have between yourself and the art director and understanding which design is the strongest and even if the author enjoys the image, it may not be the strongest direction. So we may show the author what we came up with. And if they love it, great. If not, we have that backup featuring that image that they really enjoy. I mean, it could also be a great image. <laughs> so then we use it. But normally we'll do something more original. Um, and the author usually ends up loving it. So, mm. How much of a say does an author usually get? It really depends on uh, which client I'm working with. And like with the HarperCollins book, I did one with Dutton, which was an imprint of Penguin. Um, and the author had a much uh, stronger voice on it. But I think that's because it was a larger publisher. But with university presses, it just depends on the press. There's some presses I work with that they want to make the author happy, which I completely understand. And it's also about finding a happy medium that makes us happy, but also them happy. So if we can't have both of those, then I don't, I don't think we're successful. If we can't make the author and the in-house team happy, then, then it's just not working. So yeah, you shouldn't have to sacrifice one over the other is what I'm saying. So, mm. Yeah, and that must be quite a hard balance to strike. It can be, yeah. And uh because, you know, everyone has everyone has an opinion and that's OK. And half of the battle is trying to work with everyone's opinion and still make sure everyone is is happy with the outcome. And that that can be extremely challenging. But that's the process and that's the challenge. And that's <laughs> that's part of the job. And I feel like it's really easy to blame it on a specific department or a specific, you know, the author or something, why something isn't working. But it's also our job as book designers to overcome that as well so absolutely some are easier than others <laughs> and I mean it, it's always a challenging job I think yes oh man my patience is always tested <laughs> in this job I mean I love it but it's so, mm. but yeah. I, I sometimes find that 
you know, if if I get some pushback from from an art director and say, oh, can you take it in this direction? I'll sort of go, oh, but uh, it's, it's, I, I think it looks good as it is. But then yeah. actually you end up coming out with something that's so much better than you would have done anyway. Yeah. So yeah. that that is super rewarding. Yeah, it, it definitely is. And I really enjoy those relationships where they, the art director or whoever you're working with pushes you to do better or push mm-hmm. an idea further. It's nice to be able to work with someone that is only going to push you to do your best design work. Absolutely. And, and that's really the, the sign of a great art director. Yes. All right. A couple of quick questions before we finish up. <laughs> what are some of your favorite book covers and do you find yourself drawn to covers that are similar to things that you design yes and no i'd say that i naturally gravitate towards anything that has a hand done component um just because i i think that makes it really unique and original and then i want to do that <laughs> so i uh you know i'll look at a cover and if it makes me go why didn't i do something like that then i realize i really like it um but the work, like I like the work of designers like uh, Nakim, Joan Wong, Janet Hansen, um, Adelis Martinez, and because they do everything they do is so different and just there's all these nice hand done qualities to them and they're just so unique. So I wish I could say that I was drawn to work that's someone of my own because I'd love to be remotely close <laughs> to that work. <laughs> but um, yeah, I think it's just really the hand done component. I'm. I love charcoal hand lettering and isolated imagery for some mm. reason. Like if those are paired together, I'm sold. So it's, uh, yeah, I, I can't think off the top of my head of some of my favorite book cover. Uh, I think the Goldfinch was one of my favorites. Oh, and yes. That, charcoal that lettering. Charcoal lettering. Yeah. That's isolated image, yep. <laughs> I think that, of course, I forgot who designed that right now, you know. Oh, I can't um, think of it either. <laughs> I know, but I know who it is and it's, oh, man, but I, I really enjoyed that one. And mm. uh, so I think, yeah, that's the one that started the charcoal lettering obsession. So that's good. Yes. That's or good. one that has like a like a handmade component, but then it's paired with like something super traditional, like Baskerville or something. And it looks really elegant, but uh, mm. different, you know, so. Gee, I'm just looking at your cover for the first book, which has got that <laughs> crumpled paper. Uh, paper. Yeah. <laughs> just, yeah, a very ta- sort of tactile looking love, cover yeah. and then Any- just very traditional typography over the top. Yeah, anything that has some sort of texture. I loved ripped paper and cut yeah. paper. And I definitely want to work collage into my work. But collage is a whole other beast that is, it's going to take some time to learn how to master. But yeah, I do love that tactile quality. And then using something like an uncoated stock or a gritty matte lamination to further push that idea in yeah. production. So, yeah. No, I think great production design just can take those designs to the next level. Definitely, without a doubt. I need deckled edges to come back. That's what I need. <laughs> but I don't, they just, they, I don't see it anymore in, in the bookstores. And it was so popular for like two years. And then it went away. I don't know if it was because it was expensive or anyway, I feel like that's something that should make a return. I, so. I think deckled edges are a really divisive thing. Yes. <laughs> you either Where love you them or you hate this. them. I mean, how is this podcast 
gonna go now how yeah. do you feel about <laughs> because <laughs> i i love them aesthetically i think they're super yeah. beautiful and they just make it feel like an old-timey book and i love anything that has that old-timey feel but when it comes to reading a book with deckled edges i get so frustrated because i can't just flick yeah. through them yeah really easily i completely understand that yeah it's aesthetically pleasing yeah but uh, when you're reading it, yes, <laughs> it can be a bit difficult. And I, I don't know about the economics of it and how expensive it is to to produce. So I'm sure that is a factor. Neither do I. I know it involves like tearing the pages. So it's just, and sometimes you don't always get that natural tear. And if it's not on like a cream stock, it can kind of look weird and just, anyway, yeah, yeah. it's, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably too expensive that's why well we'll have people lots of people atting us on twitter why my dad hates them he just point blank told me like i hate deckled edges and i'm like wow yeah. i guess that's how our relationship's gonna be now so <laughs> <laughs> oh dear okay yeah. well maybe onto something slightly less controversial than deckled edges <laughs> um what would be a, a dream book cover project for you is is there a, a particular title or a type of book that you would just love to work on so I was trying to put a lot of thought into this um I like for some reason I think that the closest thing that I can think of would be a cookbook because I've never done one but I've always ah. wanted to do one because I love food I who doesn't I love just picking up cookbooks and flipping through them. And I also love working with lots of hierarchy. I love that challenge. And I feel like a cookbook definitely presents that opportunity. And uh, I also love books that use different colored paper stock in the interior. Uh, you know, when it's like like the Fiden books. Oh. Uh -huh. And uh, so I would love to do something like that. But I know that that's, that's pretty heavy uh, for a budget. So that might take some time. But yeah. Or maybe like a reference book on, you know, plants and birds. We did some at Princeton, but one that's like, it's still educational, but it's like very aesthetically pleasing. So. Yeah, I love those books. Yes, oh my gosh, yeah. Like I need more plant and bird books in my house, but you know, just that would be amazing. Oh, well, maybe when you have a, a couple of quiet weeks, you could put together some, some cookbook pages. <laughs> That's a, yeah, that's a good idea. I like that yeah. idea. I might have to do that. <laughs> put it out there on your portfolio and go, yeah, yeah no, this that's, is, this that's is something very, I want to do. <laughs> it's a very good suggestion because it was always, you know, people always tell you, put what you want to do in your portfolio. Mm. And even if it's not necessarily real, I think that's a really good point. And I do it a lot with my killed covers too. Yeah. I think Instagram and Twitter social media and like a portfolio website is an excellent way to show the work that didn't quite make it, but you're still really proud of. And so um, I've kind of seen that blow up a lot more. I'm seeing a lot more killed work, which is nice because then you can yeah. see like what was going on in their mind and what other directions they went in. And it's just really interesting. So I just want to see all the behind the scenes stuff. <laughs> oh yeah. I want everyone's process. I yeah. need I need process all the time. So. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. And I think Spine Spine does a very nice job of doing that. It's always nice to see that. Just a peek inside, you know, peek behind the curtain. Yeah, and just understand how other people think through a problem. Yeah. Mm. And then, like, maybe rethinking your own process 
and yeah. learning from them. And that's that's really nice. Sure. It just also shows we're all human beings just designing book covers. And that's nice, too. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely one of my resolutions for this year is to really put more of more of my process out there online. Yes. Because I want yes. to see that from other people. So maybe exactly. people want to read it about me. I don't know. Somebody has to No, I, I, I think that's very true. I mean, if you want to start that conversation, you got to start it. And uh, maybe other people will be open to sharing their work as well if they see others are sharing. So yeah, yeah. I guess there's always that fear of people, I don't know, stealing your process or stealing your ideas but uh, that's true I mean there is that that fear um and I think it's a rational fear but I feel like there's, there's oh, to some degree there's good, there's good people in book design I feel like yeah the work I've seen at least has been so original to the point where I don't think people could easily rip it off but yeah and, and that's that's kind of the challenge almost if you can make something that nobody else is going to be able to replicate without actually reading what you've done exactly that's yeah. that's an amazing thing and even if you have documented your process say you're doing some complicated paper cutout or something yeah and you know that even if somebody reads that they're, they're still not going to be able to make yeah they're what not going to do that and it may not even be appropriate for the book that they're trying to do it for so yeah yeah and just le letting the world know that this is this is something that i can do yeah, but it didn't and quite work out for yeah. this, but maybe for the next thing. Exactly, it's bound to be it's perfect always... for some publisher. Exactly, and it's it's you never know what you make. Somebody else may think it's perfect for their project. Exactly. So, and you just want to show off what you can do, and and you know, unfortunately, not every book that gets selected, the final cover is something that you're one hundred percent proud of or one hundred percent into. So, showing off those killed covers gives you that second chance so absolutely okay it's been wonderful talking to you it's been so great talking to you thank you so much for having me i feel and like i, I know so much more about the world of, <laughs> of university presses now so thank you i hope so yeah i hope i i was able to help and hopefully didn't ramble too much about green book covers but you know <laughs> we all want to know the secret behind green book covers yes i'll make it happen i'll yeah. make it work just watch <laughs> <laughs> If you enjoyed this podcast, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favourite podcasts. Please be sure to rate and review us too. This show is hosted by Holly Dunn and edited by Eric Wilder. Our theme song is Sweet Berry Wine by Blue Wednesday. And Spine is a production of Spine Magazine. For show notes, articles, audio and video about the enormous talent that goes into creating books, visit spinemagazine.co.